You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis as we continue on uh, studying uh, our foundations, what God has revealed about Himself and about us from the very beginning. And, and how they translate across all of the pages of Scripture in one united story from the beginning to the end as God is a God who redeems the lost, a God who reveals himself and redeems those who have wandered, those who have rebelled against him from the very beginning. Well, as we enter our third and final sermon, just from Genesis chapter 3, we're entering part 3 of the curse and blessing of the fall. Um, If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and slide your hand up. The ushers would love to bring you one. We want you to be in God's Word. But yes, this is part three of the curse and blessing of the fall. As last week, we witnessed the rightful judgments that God laid upon both Adam and Eve for their tragic rebellion against Him. Uh, We saw how Eve would now suffer the painful toil of childbearing, how childbirth would be hard. We also witness for Adam how he would suffer the painful toil of the earth, the thorns and the thistles. And then we also witnessed how Eve would now be prone to a rebellious heart uh, towards her husband and how Adam will now tend to be harsh in his domination and rule over her. And then together how they were both judged to an eventual death, right, from dust You came to dust, you shall return. One thing we should be taking major note of in Genesis chapter 3, one massive truth that uh, should be loud and clear from this, the very beginning, and the fallout of our sin and death, is that the God who so powerfully created it all, the God who so lovingly and intimately created us, is the same God who so very seriously deals with sin. That whatever judgment he doles out is right and just and good as he disciplines those whom he loves. As we remember that Moses was the one who is writing this book of Genesis through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, receiving this revelation directly from God himself for his people in the wilderness. This was not just a secluded story about the very first two people and their encounter with sin, but it was a, a story about all of God's people and their own encounter with sin. As the Israelites were just freshly and powerfully rescued from the enslaving hand of Pharaoh in Egypt, God's people still needed further rescue from their own sin, right? Because the battle is not only from without, but the battle is from within. And as Israel was about to receive the Ten Commandments in the wilderness, uh, they were going to be called to obey those commandments as they enter into the Promised Land, And they needed to hear the reason why they needed these commandments. They needed to to hear the reason why they were so prone to sin. But in that as well, they were also to understand why God takes sin so seriously. So seriously that Adam and Eve are ultimately, as we're going to learn today, cast out from the garden, away from the tree of life, and away from the very personal, holy, manifest presence of God himself. And so... Well, we're going to witness today in Genesis 3, verses 21 to 14, 
is the saddest day in the Old Testament. And it's the second saddest day in the whole Bible. But as it has gone so far, so far with the sadness, there is also hope. With the judgment, there is also mercy. With the cursing, there is also blessing. So let's start in verse 21 of chapter 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is holy that it is reflective of your own holy character, that what you reveal is absolutely true and sufficient and inerrant, and that you speak to us through your holy word. As we have been examining our fall, we've been examining our willful rebellion uh, from you. Uh, We pray that you would continue to teach us Uh, the seriousness of our fall, the seriousness of our sin, why you had to also respond so seriously, but also in that, would you reveal to us your mercy, your grace, your love, your hope, and your sustaining hand towards your people. Lord, we pray today as we we close out chapter three that again you would penetrate our hearts, teach us what it means to walk in your ways, teach us what it means to live in the spirit, And teach us what it means to be like Christ, to be in Christ, to be full of your spirit, and to be living for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as the the major point so far in Genesis chapter 3, we've already gone through the two major points, uh, and they are this. The first one is, is, as we so fearfully hide, he so faithfully pursues. Number two, as we so pridefully deflect, he so rightfully judges. We have two final major points in chapter three that we're going to cover today. And, and uh, the first one, number three, is this. As we so vainly conceal, God so graciously covers. And as we so tragically rebel, he so mercifully spares. As serious as God is about our sin, it's always so humbling and astonishing that with the curse, God always provides the blessing. Now, as we remember back to verse 7, how when Adam and Eve's eyes were now open because of their sin, and now that they knew that they were naked, do you you remember what they did in response to their nakedness? What did they do? They, instead of running to God in confession and repentance, what did they do? Well, the text says, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they went and they hid from God in the trees, right, in in the garden. Right, all of a sudden, after all the perfect goodness God had showed them, after all of the alluring whispers of temptation, and then after this intense rush of them actually committing this sin against God, as they were eating of that forbidden fruit, after all of that, 
as their eyes are now newly opened with fallen senses and darkened understanding, as Adam and Eve look at themselves and and look at each other, what was once so innocent and pure and lovely, what was an unabashed nakedness before, has now become stained and twisted, and it has become shameful in their eyes to the point that they went out and they found the biggest leaves they could find in the garden, and they hacked them down and they laced them together, and they fashioned for themselves clothing in order to cover up the shame, to try to cover up the shame and the guilt of their sin. And then now, as we have just saw how the Lord God laid out each one of their respective punishments in in chapter 3, after that, he now turns to them to deal with their vain concealment, to show them that as we so vainly conceal, he so graciously covers. Verse 21, and the Lord God, remember Yahweh Elohim, that is the covenant-keeping creator God, he made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Right, as we so naturally try and vainly try to cover up our own sin and shame, the gospel truth we see right here in Genesis, in the very beginning, is that it's only God, by his grace, who can truly cover up our sin and our shame. Right, nothing that we can do is good enough. No matter what kind of attempts that we make, our carnal coverings are completely inadequate. As Adam and Eve ultimately couldn't hide from God, they also couldn't cover up anything from God. Right? No, in his omniscience, right, in his all-knowing power as God, God sees right through it all. He sees right through those fig leaves, and only he can do something to cover it up for good. Because, friends, our carnal coverings are completely inadequate. Like maybe, for example, when you think back when you were a little kid, or maybe it's one of your own kids. Maybe you got into something that you weren't supposed to. Maybe, maybe they got themselves into something they weren't supposed to. And as you wouldn't have wanted to get caught, and they don't want to get caught, or they don't want to be embarrassed, right? They end up trying to cover it up, or they try to clean up the evidence so that mom and dad won't find out. I mean, I've been there very many times in my life. I know with my brothers and I, we have too many examples of this in our own lives. I think one of them I remember is after school, uh, before mom and dad would get home from work, we would always have an after school snack, but sometimes we wanted more, and uh, as it was in the 80s, like juice crystals were a really big thing, right? We loved our juice crystals, like Tang or Kool-Aid, right? And it's me and my brothers would just love anything sugar-based. Instead of making juice out of the, the crystals, we'd just lick our fingers and stick it in the juice crystals and dip it in those crystals. And I think my favorite was Welch's grape. And so let me ask you, when you, when you, and maybe you guys have done this as well, if you've done that, what color does your finger end up turning? Like it ends up turning purple or orange, whatever color the juice is, Right? And I remember us trying to go wash off our fingers in the bathroom before mom comes home, but you can't wash off the stain, right? You put your finger in your pocket, you kind of hide it, hoping that she won't see it. We would also do that with the Kraft Dinner cheese packets, right? We were kind of weird kids. 
Anyways, the point is that we, we didn't want to get caught, and so we, we'd try to do everything we could to wash it off, to cover it up, cover up all the purple and orange. And friends, this is what we do with our sin. This can translate into all kinds of sin out there. Like maybe when you were a teenager, maybe you would try to conceal your bad acts from your parents. Right? Maybe it was a breath mint. Maybe it was Listerine. Maybe it was cologne. Or maybe, maybe you tried to wear something that you weren't allowed to wear, and just before you got home, you would cover it up with a, a hoodie or a jacket. Or maybe you'd feel so guilty over the bad things that you would try to soothe your guilt um, from these bad things, from this sin, by just trying to do good things, right? Try to clean up your conscience yourself. Like, I actually remember waking up Saturday mornings after I was misbehaving the night before and getting up and cleaning up my room or, or cleaning up the garage or asking mom and dad, how can I help? I remember feeling so guilty that I just wanted to do something good. But yet I was so unwilling to just go and confess that sin and to repent of that before them. And so the only thing I did to try to remove the, the weight of that guilt and shame is just to try to go do something good. And so friends like Adam and Eve, this is who we are in our sin. This is what we naturally want to do. We want to cover it up. We want to, we want to try to even kind of make it up, try to make it up to God. And we avoid the responsibility, we avoid the confession, and we're just trying to deal with our shame and our guilt ourselves. For Adam and Eve, it was fig leaves. The fig leaf was a pretty broad leaf. It could cover quite a bit up. I don't know what size they were in the, the garden, but they would have to sew them together, and they, they covered themselves up. But what was so futile about that? When you think about it, you know, sewing up a leaf, making yourself some clothes, what was... What was futile about that? Well, as these leaves would be an okay temporary covering, what happens to leaves when they're not connected to their food source or their water source? Right? They start to dry up, they start to decay, and they start to fall apart in just a short amount of time. I mean, this, just this week we were weeding our garden and we pulled out some, some weeds and we laid it on the ground and in the heat within, a, within two days, it's just shriveled up. It's just crisp and falling apart. In a short amount of time, the leaves are gone. And so from just a practical standpoint of God uh, uh, clothing them with these skins, just from a practical standpoint, leaves were no good, right? Leaves were not going to cut it. But friends, there's more to it than that. What was more here is the fact that God would make garments out of skins in order to replace leaves. It is a better covering for them than the leaves. And just practically speaking, again, animal skin, leather, is much better than leaves, right? Leather, when it comes from either a sheep or a cow, is not gonna fall apart. I mean, you might have some purses out there made of leather, they last a long time. My Bible is covered in goatskin leather. It looks brand new, I got this about seven years ago. It's an amazing cover. And so practically speaking, the, the animal skins are much better. But again, is that the ultimate reason why God would cover them with skins? Well, as leather is much better practically, what we need to be thinking about here more importantly is what's happening theologically here. As Adam and Eve's coverings for their shame were inadequate 
to say the least, what is the Lord revealing in this covering of the skin? Well, we got two things here, A and B. An adequate covering could only come from God. That's the first thing. An adequate covering could only come from God. And B, an adequate covering could only come through the death of another. That's what we see going on here in just this little section, this little verse. It's not just that leather is better. No, it's so much more. And so let's start with the fact that an adequate covering could only come from God. Friends, as Adam and Eve's attempts to cover up their sin were so futile, the only thing that they could come up with were fig leaves, right? They were, they were working with what they had, what was in front of them. They would have never have thought themselves to cover themselves with animal skin. They would have never known that an animal skin was so much more superior. That would have never crossed their mind because, right, they had no experience of that yet. Up to this point, they were naked, and it was good. And so the fact that God clothes them with skins is something foreign to them. They don't have that knowledge. And so this highlights, again, that this is the initiative of God, that his way is always the better way, and that he is the source of the covering for their sin. He is the provider of the covering. And that any attempt to try to cover up yourself in your way is useless. But then secondly, because in order to get skin, you have to have death, an adequate covering could only come through the death of another. Again, as death wasn't a thing yet in the garden, you know, as Adam and Eve were vegetarians, right? They were eating of the fruit and the vegetables of the fields, right? Up to this point, no animals have died. Nothing has been killed up to this point. Death is just coming into the world because of their sin. No one has yet tasted death. Nothing has tasted death. And as God determined to cover them with animal skin, an animal had to be killed. An animal had to be sacrificed for them to be covered. And so, friends, we see so much more here than, than just the practical now we see theological implications that transcend this whole, this whole word of God. That although it's, it's, this little section seems to be very simple and even seemingly non-descriptive, what we're witnessing going on here in the clothing of Adam and Eve is something greater. Right? That God himself must provide the covering and that the covering comes through a substitutionary death. Right? Life for life, Death for death, blood for blood. Why? Well, because fig leaves won't do. Carnal covering up of ourselves will not do. Doing anything in our own strength, in our own way, is futile in the eyes of God. It will not last, it will not work, and it ultimately cannot cover you up before an all-knowing God. James Boyce, a commentator and preacher, said, fig leaves are like Monopoly money. You know, it may be good for the game of Monopoly, but it doesn't work in the real world. Right, if you were to take that Monopoly uh, winning, say you won the game and you took that money down to CIBC or the Scotia Bank, what are they gonna do? Right, it's of zero value to them. It's not real money. It has no power in the real world. That's what your fig leaves are. 
They have no purchasing power of anything within the eternal realm of God. No, to truly deal with sin and shame requires more than you. It requires more than this world. It requires God. It requires him to step in. Because we can do nothing in our own strength and in our own power to remove the guilt and shame from our lives. Right? No amount of making yourself look good, no amount of even doing good, none of all these things are of any value to God when it comes to his kingdom. They are all like filthy rags, right? No, friends, none of it can do anything of any value to save you or to cover you. God had to do it for us. God has to do it for you. It's the only way. Friends, what we're really seeing here in the very beginning of the Bible, in just chapter 3, is the very first substitutional sacrifice in the Scriptures. And this would begin a long line of hundreds and thousands and millions of substitutional sacrifices throughout the whole Old Testament that is all pointing forward and leading up to one perfect final sacrifice made by God as he sacrificed himself, he sacrificed his son substitutionally for you and for me. Why? Why did he do this? Why does he need to do it that way? Well, friends, because as good as our intentions are, and even as sorry as we may be, no amount of effort on our part could ever pay the price for such a wicked travesty against God. No amount of good works could ever atone for the grievous treason that we commit against a holy, righteous, eternal God. No, as Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The price that Adam and Eve owed could never be repaid with hard work or effort or any amount of riches on this entire planet. No, the price they owed, friends, was their death. Right, what did he say? You will surely die. That's the price. For the wages of sin is death. Friends, fig leaves have no power over death. And so as Romans 5.12 says, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. That's you and me. All sinned. Every one of us. Throughout all history. Across this entire planet. We all sin against God, and the wages of sin is death. Friends, all that we owe to God is death. Why? Because we all sin. Friends, in your sin, no matter how big or small you think it is, the repayment or the cost of redemption for that death can only come through the currency of a bloody death. And as Adam and Eve would have witnessed this slaughtering of this animal before their eyes. Just think of all the blood. Think about God skinning that animal, all being done by God before their eyes. They would have witnessed the ugly horror of death right before them. How death is so gruesome and how death is so horrific. But yet what God is showing them, what he is showing them is that instead of these 
two sinners experiencing that same horrific death right then and there, that instead he goes and he takes the life of another. He spills the blood of another in order to preserve their life. That he took the flesh of another to cover up their sinful flesh. That because they couldn't adequately clothe themselves, God clothed them in order for it to be an acceptable, 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 adequate covering before him. Friends, what God is already showing them and showing the Israelites who are listening to Moses as he's writing this, and as, he, as God is showing us today, friends, is the gospel. As chapter 315 already promised this glorious story of a serpent head crusher savior coming, that savior is going to crush the head of Satan. How? He's going he's to crush the head of Satan by being crushed himself. Isaiah 53, 5. Right, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for what? For our guilt. It was going to be through his substitutionary death. It's going to come through his pouring out of his blood in a bloody, gruesome, horrific death. That's the greatest, saddest day of all history, of all the scriptures. But it was through his horrific death that a covering, an acceptable covering, clothing, eternal, adequate covering would come. What the Lord God is foreshadowing for us here is the very first substitutionary atonement that is going to point forward to the great and final substitutionary atonement in Jesus Christ himself. The ultimate righteous covering that comes through the death in the life of another through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, for our sake, he made him, God made him, made who? Made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the righteous covering being found in Jesus Christ. Christ. That's what we sing about as Christians. That's why we get up in the morning. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. And that's the same righteousness that Adam and Eve needed. And as they would witness this horrific process right before their eyes... They were witnessing firsthand also God removing their worldly attempts to make themselves right with him, the removal of those fig leaves. And then they would have witnessed God taking that better covering for them, the covering that comes from another, and placing it upon them, which is an adequate covering in his eyes. Because their sin was also pointing forward. And this covering was pointing the whole world forward to the glorious gospel truth that Christ is the only adequate covering for our sin. It's his righteous flesh 
His righteous life accounted to your account. That's the only way that you can stand before a holy God. So let me ask you, friends, in the fallout of your own sin, which fig leaves are you trying to use right now to cover up your sin and your guilt and your shame? What worldly attempts are you making to try and to atone for your own rebellion against God? Are you merely trying to hide the bad stuff in front of God or in front of others? Are you just trying to look the part, right? That whole smiling and waving when what's true is there's so much darkness within and that darkness has not been dealt with yet. Do you think that you need to clean yourself up before you can come before the Lord? That's a lie from the pit of hell because you can't clean yourself up. Are you just cleaning the outside of the cup, as Jesus would say to the Pharisees, right? Are you being a whitewashed tomb, right? Matthew 23, 27, for you were like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. The question is, is what are our fig leaves, friends? Where are you placing your trust? Is it a fig leaf or is it just kind of pretending that everything's okay when you know that full well it isn't? Is it the fig leaf of trying to look the part when in reality everything's falling apart in your life? Is it the fig leaf of of try harder, do more, go do some good things and then hopefully those good things are going to outweigh the bad things? When the word of God says all of your work is like filthy garment before the Lord, Is your fig leaf ritualistic, legalistic religion? Right? I go to church, I pay my tithe, I sing the songs, I take the communion, I help the poor, I serve the church. Those are all those are all good things and commanded for sure. But the problem comes, friends, when we start to put our faith in those things and not in the righteous covering of Jesus Christ when we start to put our faith in the things and the stuff and the duty rather than the one whom they point to. Friends, fig leaves are eternally dangerous. That's why God removes them. They're dangerous because as good as the best fig leaf may be in your life, the moment that you begin to put your faith in the fig leaf in your own efforts is the moment that you forget the adequate covering of righteousness by Christ alone that you so desperately need. That that can only come from another and that it can only come from Jesus Christ. Friends, the problem with fig leaves is that they give you a false sense of security and that is a deadly sense of security. It also gives you a false sense of identity. Right? The ultimate problem with fig leaves is that when you arrive one day before the judgment throne of God and Jesus looks at you and he asks you, why should I let you into my kingdom? You might say this from Matthew 7, to 23. Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? How does he respond? He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Friends, we can't put our, our hope, we can't put our faith in any kind of fig leaf, any kind of covering done by ourselves. We need to kill the, the fig leaves. We need to stop putting them on. We need to confess that, God, I can't cover my sin myself. I can't be good enough, God. I can't do anything to cover my shame, God. No, instead, God, I am naked. I am exposed before you in my guilt, in my shame. And then as the Bible would instruct you, run to Jesus Christ. Confess it all. Turn away from the fig leaf. Turn away from that dependency to want to try to run and cover your sin. Turn away from your carnal attempts and surrender and receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. That's your only hope, right? He died so that we could live. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins and the righteousness was given to you as the righteous robes of Jesus Christ that will cover you forever, your guilt and shame perfectly dealt with by God, the one who intervenes himself. And so as God dresses Adam and Eve with this simple yet profound skin of another, he also prepares them for the hard road ahead. We also see here next how he has to deal with the most lethal potential of all in verse 22 to 24. And this is going to reveal the fourth and the final major point in Genesis chapter 3, which is this, as we so tragically rebel, he so mercifully spares. As we so tragically rebel, he so mercifully spares. Friends, as this final judgment here in chapter 3 is so devastatingly sad, right, this whole expulsion from the garden, again, as we look closely at it, what we're going to see again is blessing amidst the curse, mercy amidst the judgment. Just look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now this whole like one of us business here in this text is again another insight into the plurality of God, the plural nature of God. Uh, In the same way that God said, let us make man in our image and put him in the garden, now we witness his internal deliberation going on within the triune Godhead as he now deems it necessary to remove Adam from the very garden that he was originally designed to guard and to keep. And what we see here is that the judgment is extremely severe, right? This is the worst outcome ever. This is worse than the pain of childbirth. This is worse than the weeds and the thorns. This is worse than the relational pain and the fallout between man and woman. No, this last judgment, like I said in the beginning of this sermon, is the saddest day in all of Scripture next to the death of Jesus Christ. But friends, it is, it is so sad and it is so severe for a reason. As Adam and Eve have both eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, now as their eyes have been opened and now that they are like God in the sense that they are now bent on trying to be the captains of their own destiny, as they're trying to be the ones who judge what's right and wrong for themselves, but doing so with darkened minds and sinful hearts, as they cannot be trusted to obey God any longer, God then decides to remove Adam and Eve 
from all temptations for their good. The text goes on to say, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Friends, a bigger problem than the original sin before God is eternal sin before God. Right? As Adam and Eve are now sinners through and through, totally depraved, God in his mercy has to stop them. He has to stop them from uh, the potential of living eternally in their sinful state. Like now, if Adam and Eve in their sinful state were now to go into the garden and to eat of the tree of life, this would be the most eternally tragic thing ever. And if they were to do that, there would be no hope for them at all. You see, friends, God is not okay with eternal sin. He doesn't want them to live forever in their sinful state. Because why? It's not good for them. It's not good for God. It's not good for the whole universe. Right? They would be like that serpent, that fallen angel who tempted them, living forever in his sin, doing nothing but evil all of his days, destroying themselves, destroying the garden, destroying the whole universe in their sin forever and ever. God does not want that for his people. This would be the most horrible thing ever. I mean, just think about in our own world history. Think about the evil ones who have stood out throughout history. Think of Nero or Genghis Khan or Hitler or Putin. Right? Wouldn't that be such an eternally devastating thing for guys like them to be living forever, living out their absolute evil and destruction in the world forever and ever, never dying, wielding their evil forever. And friends, it's the same for us as it was for Adam and Eve. Eternal life in sin would be an absolute eternal horror. And so God has to do something about it. He has to remove them from all temptation and ability to reach out to that tree of life that if they ate it in their fallen state, would be evil forever and ever. And so how does he deal with it? He removes them from the garden. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, right? Sent out to the very ground that Adam was formed from the dirt, lumps of dirt. He sent him out. And what we see here is that it's, it's not a willing thing on part of Adam and Eve. Right? This would have been a forced thing. They don't want to leave the garden. Verse 24 says, he drove out the man. They didn't want to go. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we see him sending them out. In fact, he's driving them out. And he deems to keep them out. And friends, as devastating as it all is, and as extremely sad as this story is, the worst story ever being cast out, removed from God's garden, removed from the very personal, intimate, holy presence of God, there is still a blessing in this curse, friends, that God was doing this out of mercy towards us. Yes, it was a rightful judgment for sure, 
And yes, this ultimately isn't what, what God wanted from the beginning. In his providential plan, he's all over it. He knows the beginning from the end. He knew we were going to sin against him. This has been his plan to give us a taste of the garden, to point us forward to the eternal garden that he calls his people to in repentance and faith. The removal of the garden is ultimately for their good, to keep them from the tree, to keep them from an eternal sinful state. Yes, it was the saddest yet best thing God could have done for us in that moment. Because as he just promised in verse 15, as he promised that coming head crusher of Satan, as he just foreshadowed the gospel of justification by faith through Christ alone, the best outcome was for him to keep us from, from living perpetual, infinite, sinful lives in order to give us the glorious opportunity to receive salvation that is going to come through that serpent crusher so that we would live in him, that we would also die in him, that we would be raised in him, imperishable, undefiled, without sin, forever and ever. That's his plan from the very beginning. Friends, salvation comes through judgment. God's judgment is so intertwined with his mercy. As Satan had to be judged, it was through the serpent-crushing judgment that we are saved. Right? Through the woman's judgment of childbirth pains. It's through the ultimate seed of Eve, right? The mother of all living, that that Savior is going to be born through the birth pains of a virgin one day. Just like the judgment of the man through the toil of the earth, one day Christ is going to come to, to redeem the entire universe from all of its groanings and its bondage to corruption. Friends, it's only through our removal from God's presence that we can be taken back into God's presence in the end. As he has been showing his mercy, this is where we find our hope. And our, our hope is found in the eternal righteousness of Christ. If we ate that fruit in our sin, it would be eternal. God doesn't want that for you. He wants eternal life for you. Hebrews 9.27, just as is it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, friends. That judgment is coming soon. When the serpent crusher returns... After he has already crushed the head of Satan on the cross and through the open tomb, he is going to come back to destroy Satan once and for all, and he is going to judge the living and the dead. And friends, the life Adam and Eve were given outside of the garden and the life that you now, now live in the mercy of God is all an act of his benevolent mercy towards you so that you would repent and trust in him. We could have been destroyed from the very outset. We could have been destroyed in, in God's very presence. Or we could have caused sin to reign forever with no hope of redemption. And friends, as sad and devastating as it was to be cast out of the garden, it was the only way. And it was ultimately for our good. And we, when we see how serious God is about it, he puts a cherubim in place to keep Adam and Eve from trying to return. Now, when you think of a cherubim, what do you think of initially? Right, some cute little floating angel with wings. 
Yeah, there was nothing cute about this guy. A cherubim is a special, extremely powerful angel of God. In fact, cherubim are mentioned overnight. <coughs> Sorry. 90 times in the Bible. And I got to tell you, when it comes right down to it, <clears throat> you're not going to want to meet a cherubim. If you ever have to face one, you would be absolutely frozen in fear. If you want to understand more about what they look like or what they're like, go read Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel describes four of them in chapter 1. Each of them have four faces. The face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle. Each of them have four wings. Ezekiel says in, in chapter 1 verse 13, as for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. Friends, as much as you might think it's pretty cool if you could actually see an angel, to see these cherubim would absolutely terrify you. And what you see in Scripture is that wherever the Lord's presence is, they are always guarding and protecting now, we need to be careful to understand their role of guarding and protecting. Their guarding and protecting isn't because God needs to be protected. Their guarding and protecting is to protect you from God. As God places a cherubim at the east gate of the garden, he's not doing it to protect himself from us. No, he's doing it out of mercy to protect Adam and Eve from trying to re-enter the garden and to eat of the tree of life. And also, as cherubim are always associated with God's holy presence, they are now put in place to protect Adam and Eve from God's very holy presence. Because friends, in our sin, you cannot stand before God on your own. You will surely die. God has to protect us from ourselves, and God has to protect us from him. He did this in Eden throughout the installation of these cherubim, out of mercy and grace towards us. In fact, as you study the rest of the Bible, this whole cherubim imagery is everywhere, and it's constantly reminding us of God's holy, powerful presence. Again, as Moses is writing this to the Israelites who were in the desert, they are about to build the very tabernacle for the worship of the Lord. And within that tabernacle, they are going to build the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle and the temple, cherubim are imaged throughout these processes, throughout God's divine construction, within the fabric of the tabernacle and most profoundly within the Ark of the Covenant. I have a picture of... of a resemblance of the Ark of the Covenant. And on the very top there, you see the very mercy seat of God. In Exodus 25, 18 to 22, we see God's instructions to Moses in the design of this sanctuary. He says, and you shall make two cherubim of God, a hammered work, you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at the one end and one cherub on the other end. 
of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another towards the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you, and there I will meet you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The cherubim are there on the ark of the covenant to remind us that God needs to protect us from ourselves and to protect us from him. The ark of the covenant was placed within the holy of holies. And his mercy place, mercy seat was placed in the middle of the sanctuary. And we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see the two cherubim are always present on the Ark of the Covenant and then even in the temple, in Solomon's temple, they build two other massive cherubim, statues of cherubim within the temple, again to remind the people of God's holy presence, that we need to be protected from his holiness because of our sinful state, as God would meet his people throughout the Old Testament. It was only once a year that he could send one man, one high priest, through a whole series of of special rituals and washings, a man who would wear animal skin. He would put on a covering of animal skin. And he would enter the place of the Holy of Holies to make atonement. How? By the spilling and splattering of a lamb's blood all over the place in there. Again, reminding us of the horror of death. But the beauty of the substitutionary atonement provided by God himself. As his very personal presence would come down, this is how he dwelled within his people but always this reminder of the wings of the cherubim that he is enthroned upon the wings of his cherubim in the tabernacle, in the temple, designed to shield us from him, veiled and a curtain put in place so that we could not enter. All of this is pointing back to the garden. And so as Adam and Eve are cast out, as horrible as it may seem, it's God's mercy and grace to spare us amidst our tragic rebellion. And it remained this way throughout the generations of the tabernacle and the generations of the temple until finally and perfectly and so beautifully. The very presence of God came down for us, even in our sin, that God so loved us that he sent his only son. And what was his name? Emmanuel, God with us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came down to tabernacle with us. God's presence with man again, face to face with God himself through the person of Jesus Christ. But then in the end, it was his life for our life, his death for our death, his blood for our blood, his flesh for our flesh. And as Jesus cries out on the cross, it is finished. What happens in the temple? 
The curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The very curtain that shields God's holy presence from his people is now open for all to see, for all to come in. No more cherubim is needed. No more cherubim is needed to guard us from ourselves or to guard us from God. The holy of holies is now open in Jesus Christ and his flesh is given to us. As Hebrews 10.20 says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. The Bible is one grand story pointing towards Jesus Christ and his righteousness that we need applied to our lives. This has been God's plan all along, that in judgment there is salvation, in judgment there is mercy, in the curse there is blessing, that even in our sin, God gave us the hope of rescue. A rescue from ourselves because we so need it. A rescue from judgment because we so need it. And a rescue back to the very personal, intimate, holy presence of God forever and ever through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so friends, in in review of the fall, in review of Genesis 3, in review of the blessing and the curse, we see the very mercy of God that as we so fearfully hide, he's a God who so faithfully pursues As we so pridefully deflect, he so rightfully judges. As we so vainly conceal, he so graciously covers. And as we so tragically rebel, he so mercifully spares. And all of this is meant to cast our eyes towards him and his love for us and his beauty and his glory. What a benevolent, beautiful, merciful, gracious God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that this, this story of Scripture is not just isolated, moralistic stories, but all of it is taking place according to your revelation of who you are. As we have been studying Genesis 1, 2, and 3, it, it's a revelation of your grace, a revelation of your mercy, that as we so tragically rebelled, you so mercifully spare. But you do that through the work of your Son, as you nailed him to the cross for our sin, you did not shield yourself, your wrath, your anger, your fury over our sin. You did not shield that to your son. But he absorbed it all. He took it all for us. Lord, we thank you that the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful to save. And it's so powerful to continue to transform. We do pray that as we contemplate the beauty of this, that you would constantly be transforming us, that we would constantly have our eyes restored uh, to the awe of who you are, that you would be our greatest joy, our greatest longing, as we long to once again be in your very personal, intimate presence forever in the eternal garden, the new heavens and the earth with you forever. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.